Please open to the book of James. Hey, here we go. New year, new new sermon series. Put on your spiritual seatbelts, right? We're going for a ride through the book of James. I love the graphic Angie put together for us. There's a car on a road. Wisdom for life. Or godly wisdom. I introduced you to the book last week. I'm going to cover some of that same ground today. I know a lot of people were out of town. But there will be plenty of new material too in case you were here last week. So let me read the opening to the book of James. James 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So who, who is James? Let's talk about the author first. Who is writing to us? Well, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We understand this is wisdom from God, but he picked, God chose the perfect man to deliver this letter. We considered last week James, most likely, most likely, most theologians believe, is the younger half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether or not that changes the meaning of the letter is besides us. I just wanted to consider us to put ourselves in his shoes. What would it be like to be the younger brother of Jesus. I'm sure that his parents did not tell James who Jesus was, that he was Messiah at an early age. This information wasn't to be revealed to the world until the time was right. You remember when the wine ran out at the wedding of Canaan, and Jesus' mother said, Do something about it. And he said, something to the effect of woman, not my time. But he went and did it anyways. And so I assume that for most of his life, it was a guarded secret. How would you like to hear your whole life about the Messiah as taught by the rabbis in the synagogue, and that this chosen one of God would come and redeem Israel and uh, save them from their sins and free them from the oppression and restore the kingdom of Israel to glory, and then you find out it's your older brother. Hard to believe, right? And what makes it hard to believe is our pride. What? Jesus? That guy, normally for younger siblings, you can't wait to get out from under the shadow of your older siblings. 
I wonder if Jesus' parents in their earthly sinfulness treated him better than the other children? You've got to consider these things. And we just use our sanctified imaginations and they help us to maybe understand the book. If you don't come at it from this perspective, the wisdom in James is, is, it is what it is. It's the same truth. It's the same meaning. But I think it'll help us to understand that if James's theme, the theme to the book here is that there is something inside of us that wants us to settle for our own ideas, our own wisdom, instead of clinging to godly wisdom, which will lead to godly living, then we have to understand that that is part of who we are and how in Christ we can overcome those inclinations. But the first thing you need to understand is that it's there. There's something inside all of us that wants to go our own way, that wants to listen to our own wisdom, that thinks we know best or we know better. And if that, if that is the stumbling block that stands between us and the cross, right? The cross is foolishness to unbelievers. Who, who better than one of Jesus' younger brothers to write on this topic? He must really understand this as a stumbling block. So that's all that I want you to consider there. Later, we find that James became a believer. He says so here. James, a bond servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How hard was that for him to say? Well, impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. God gave James a new heart to be able to recognize his brother as Messiah, as the Son of God. And not only recognize him, well, yes, my older brother is the Messiah, the Son of God, but to cling to everything that that means. That means he is my God. This person is divine. This brother of mine is divine. He is my God. He's my creator and my redeemer and my master. I have an older sister. There is just no way. <laughs> right? There is no way. I have a younger brother, and there's just no way. He's, we have a great relationship, but I, I can't do a lot of teaching to him. I'm just always going to be the older brother. Maybe I'm the last guy he wants to hear truth from. So I pray that God will put other good teachers and counselors in his life. James became a leader of the Jerusalem Council. We read in the book of Acts that the apostles came to the Jerusalem Council because Gentiles began to be saved. And how do you incorporate them into a church that started uh, with Jews? Should they have to keep the Mosaic Law? How much of it should they have to get circumcised? How much of the Mosaic Law should they have to keep? And the Jerusalem Council met and, and um, decided there were four things that these Gentile believers needed to follow. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. I won't tell you what the four things are now. You can go look it up at home if you're intrigued. But James was the leader of that council. James says that he's a bondservant 
of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be a bondservant of two masters. Right? Jesus said, a slave cannot obey two masters. So what is he saying about God and the Lord Jesus Christ? They're the same master. This is a statement authenticating the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a slave must hear and obey his master. The slave doesn't get up in the morning and say, well, what do I want to do with my day? So again, if this is indeed the younger brother of Jesus, to come to a place in your life where you're able to say, whatever Jesus tells me to do today, that is what I will do. Jesus said, whatever the Father tells me to do, that is what I do. My, the Father is my drink and my sup. That's my food and drink. This is who we need to be in Christ. We should be able to say, Brent, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What it means to be a Christian. My life is not my own. It was purchased with a price. I was redeemed by the blood of my Master. To whom is James writing? The audience, then. We have the author, the audience. He says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Twelve tribes is euphemistic for the nation Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel. Israel, the patriarch. Formerly known as Jacob, Israel. His twelve sons become the twelve tribes of Israel. In this case, James is referring to Jewish Christians scattered due to persecution. At this time, there were some Gentiles in the church. I don't think there were a lot. The reasons being that we don't read anything in the book of James about trying to assimilate Jews and Gentiles in the same church. Not like later, the later writings of Paul where he's trying to get the two groups to peacefully coexist and be one. James is also written in a very Jewish style. A lot of references to Old Testament law. A lot of references to a book called the Book of Sirach. A, a wisdom book commonly used by rabbis of the day. And the wisdom in that book would be culturally relevant to his hearers. So it has a Jewish kind of flavor to a Jewish kind of audience, and you might be saying, well, I'm not Jewish. How is this going to relate to me? Well, think of the way the Jews were at that time and what they must be struggling with after conversion. They lived in a legalistic society, a works-based righteousness-type society. If I do good, then I'm good. Right after this opening section, James is going to go into talking about the rich and the poor. And in that society, if you were rich, it was assumed God was blessing you because you were doing the right things in life. And if you were poor, God was punishing you with your poverty. And so these are the kinds of ideas 
that they had to struggle with. I don't think it's a far stretch from the kinds of things we struggle with in our materialistic society. Much of the modern evangelical church has kind of gone this direction. The largest Christian church in the country is in Texas, Joel Osteen's church. And that is the message there. God wants to bless you with with riches, and your riches are evidence that God is pleased with you. And yet the pages of the Bible, especially the New Testament, tell us to expect all kinds of persecutions and trials. And Jesus said, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay His head. We don't see Jesus being incredibly materially wealthy at all. (laughs) And He certainly was blessed more than any man. And His life was no bed of roses at all. He suffered more than any man ever suffered. And yet, when we get to this topic of trials, isn't it... As Americans, our expectation that we should never have trials. This is America. Isn't this what is being taught and preached in our culture today? If there's trials in your life, it's not your fault, and the government will take care of it. It's somebody else's fault, we will take care of it. Nothing good can come from trials. They're to be avoided at all costs. They're never brought on by your own poor choices. Even in Christian culture, we've talked about this concept from the pulpit before, but Christianity in America has gone in the direction of what they call moralistic therapeutic deism. That most people who call themselves Christians in America think the idea is to be somewhat moral, based on their own definition of moral. Therapeutic, meaning I should be happy all the time, and if God is anything, He's my great psychologist in the sky who's there to salve my conscience and tell me it's, it's going to be okay. You're a good person. And yet, de- deistic, meaning he, He's there, but He's not intimately involved with the affairs of my life. There is a God, He's out there, and in general, He wants me to be happy, and He wants me to be moral. And so that's pretty much people's shallow view of Christianity in America, moralistic, therapeutic deism. So when James opens a letter with this, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That ought to snap us out of our slumber. Excuse me, what did he say? I think he misread his notes. Did you say consider it all joy? The highest, most optimistic of human emotions, joy. And not just joy, but all joy. The peak of joy, the pinnacle of joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This is how he starts his letter. 
And keep in mind, it's the church is dispersed because of persecution. So the many copies of this letter sent out, we said last week, most likely this is the first New Testament book written, even before the Gospels were written down. The church was scattered. They need wisdom. They need a teacher. So James pens this letter. It's sent out to the various churches, and it's read out loud. So if you're thinking, I've got to write a letter to people that I'm not seeing face to face. How do I start the letter and get them hooked? Every teacher knows you have to start with a hook. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. They're paradoxical statements according to human wisdom. We're not supposed to consider it all joy when we're in a trial. Trials are to be avoided. And if you're in one, the goal is to get out of it as quickly as possible. I want my life back to normal, back to, back to the way I like things. This command to consider, and we're going to see in James, more commands in the book of James per word than any other book of the Bible. Just boom, boom, boom. And some people, including Martin Luther, felt that uh, James was kind of a works-based righteousness and he didn't want it to be in the New Testament canon. He called it the epistle of straw. You understand where Martin Luther was coming from out of Catholicism, out of a works-righteousness type environment. And when he heard the gospel of justification by faith, that became so precious to him. And yet we're going to see in this book, justification by faith is preached. It does not contradict Paul at all. It complements Paul. But the style of the letter is going to be command after command after command after command. And he's going to command us to do things. And then he's going to say, here's what it will look like if you do it right. And here's what it will look like if you do it wrong. And then he's going to follow up and say, you know you do it wrong. He's going to command us to do things that we can't possibly accomplish in our own strength. And what is that going to do? It's going to humble us and drive us straight to the cross. And yet James is a corrective for any easy beliefism, cheap grace, folks. Well, yeah, I can't be perfect. No one can be perfect, so why even try? James isn't going to let us sit there and not grow. The whole book is about spiritual maturity. This concept is foundational to the biblical counseling movement. And if you had come to the pre-annual business meeting or the annual meeting, we said one of the goals this year is to help our church understand the concepts of biblical counseling, to take God's Word and the Gospel and go beyond, well, I'm not going to hell. There's so much more here for us. And instead of saying, you need to go to the professional when you need help interpreting life. We're going to say and teach you and equip you to go to God's Word to get help interpreting life correctly. Because at the root of just about all of our problems is that we are misinterpreting our life circumstances. 
we are created to be revelation receivers. Information is coming in all the time through our senses. We've been given given these brains by God to think and process and interpret. And when things go wrong, it's because we have the wrong interpretation, wrong wisdom, earthly wisdom, man-centered wisdom, worldly wisdom. We have the wealthiest nation in the history of the planet. We have the greatest access to education than any nation ever. And we have the highest number of therapists, psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, lawyers, this whole network of people helping us to clean up the mess. We're the most depressed nation on the planet if if what you go by is the number of prescriptions written for antidepressants. Something is amiss. By all accounts, we have everything we should need as a people to be happy, to be satisfied, to be content. So James is going to help us all be proper biblical interpreters, to consider things properly, But you're going to have to come to God's Word in humility and say, maybe I don't know. There's a a book on our shelf at home, Maybe God is Right After All. Yeah, you know that one? Maybe God is right after all. It's tongue-in-cheek. Of course He's right. But that's where it starts. That's where pride gets chipped away. Maybe I don't have the whole picture here. And so he says, consider it all joy, or in the ESV, count it all joy. This verb has the idea of judging or reconciling, like you're an accountant, a bookkeeper. I've got this trial in my life. Do I put it in the asset column or the liability column? Well, where are we naturally going to put trials? In the liability column. I want to offload this baby as soon as I can. This is cramping my style. If it was something we'd consider as all joy, we we would put it in the asset column. Is this good or is this bad? Well, of course it's bad. Well, if I consider it all joy, maybe the trial's good. James is commanding us to reconcile or regard or interpret our circumstances in light of God's revelation. We've been considering our trials like this. He's saying, no, you've got to consider them like this because they're going to keep coming. You can't escape trials. You can't hide from them. God will find you. I love how providentially God will so organize the circumstances of our lives and our interactions with other human beings that He will get us to the place where we finally will have to deal with the thing He wants us to deal with. 
All the doors have been shut. We're painted into a corner. You're going to have to deal with things according to God's will. There's no one left to blame. And that's when the healing begins, when the growth begins. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What? How can you put joy and cross in the same phrase? Where is the joy in the cross? The joy was the results of going to the cross. That He would redeem a people for Himself sanctifying a bride to present to His Father, a people who we can be with and love and will love the Godhead for all eternity. There's ultimate joy. And if it meant going through the cross, then Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before Him. He considered it all joy, not the actual cross, what the cross would achieve. Right? He asked his father if there was any other way. But not my will be done, your will be done. It is okay when we find ourselves in various trials to say, is there any other way you could teach me this lesson, God? Didn't Paul pray three times to have his thorn in the flesh removed and God said, my grace is sufficient. Paul decided what he needed to learn was humility, and that was the only way to humble Paul. To give him a thorn in the flesh he couldn't do anything about. So we're not saying consider the trial the joy. It's consider what the trial will produce that is the joy. So what will it produce? Why should we consider it all joy? James goes on to say, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or in the ESV, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This idea that our faith could be resolute, steadfast, firm, unshakable, unmovable. What's the movie out right now? Unbreakable? Unbroken, thank you. If faith is the basis of our relationship with God, then faith is paramount. We can't have a relationship with God without faith. And again and again and again in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you see the disciples saying, increase our faith. And Jesus saying, O ye of little faith, So I want more faith. How about you? I want more faith in 2015. I want an unshakable faith. I want to be closer to God. Amen. Okay, I'm ready for it, God. Can you just hand it to me? No. Well, how do I get it? Through trials. Is there any other way? No? It's it's how we strengthen faith. It's how you strengthen your muscles. You're going to have to train. Can we skip the training and go to the game? doesn't work that way. 
Can we skip the lessons and go to the performance? It doesn't work that way. We do not like trials. We naturally avoid them. We don't like hard things. A couple of guys wrote a book a few years ago called Do Hard Things, an encouragement to youth to not shy away from the hard things, but to welcome challenges. We don't have to seek out trials. They just come. But don't avoid them. Don't set up your life in such a way that you try to avoid every possible trial. At the same time, don't go out and bring trouble on yourself for the sake of trouble. Let's look at a little bit of what the Bible has to say about faith so we can become convinced. Remember, there's something inside all of us, our fallen nature, that will say, well, sure, faith is important, but we'll live our lives in such a way that demonstrates we actually think other things are far more important, like happiness, comfort, making a great name for ourselves. So Hebrews 11.1 will define faith for us. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The Bible says no one has seen God. Our relationship with Him has to be based on faith. We cannot use our normal senses in order to come to the conclusion that God is and that He is real. It takes faith. Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe, that's faith, that He is. First you have to believe that God really is. And that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. When everything in your natural man is telling you not to seek God in His ways, but to seek your own ways, it takes faith to say no to the natural man and to say... I will seek after God, no matter what the cost. I will sell everything and buy the field, because the treasure is in the field. If the rich young ruler really had faith in Christ, and that's what he wanted more than anything else, when Christ said, sell everything and give it to the poor and follow me, he would have sold everything. It was a test. It was a trial specifically designed for that one man because Jesus knew his money was more important to him than God. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is the foundation of the gospel, faith is. It is the foundation of our righteousness. It's not our works that save us. It's our faith in the one who worked for us on the cross. Are you seeing that faith then is all important? Romans 10.17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ and faith is inextricably linked to the word of God. 
It's the connection James is making for us. You want faith, and you want it strengthened, and the way it's going to be strengthened is through trials, and the way to interpret your trials correctly is through the Word of Christ. Can you connect those dots and really cement that in there? You want God. You want relationship with Him. It comes through faith. I want a better relationship with God. Then you need more faith. How will I get more faith? Through trials. Is it possible to go through a trial and have your faith weakened? Yes, indeed. It can. So how do I get through a trial with my faith not only intact but strengthened? Ask God for wisdom. That's what he says next. Well, he says, And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to understand that the various trials, don't just think about those big, weighty things in life. He could have said persecutions. We, we assume because he's writing to the church that's been dispersed because of persecution that that's what he has in mind. But he's more general. Various trials. Trials can also be translated tests. And temptations. Yesterday, my uh, family, we thought we would go down to L.A. and surprise the kids. We have these surprise rides. We just say, get in the car. This is how you're going to dress. And just trust us. And so we're going to go to the Getty Center. Go to the Getty Museum. And apparently, lots of parents had the same idea. (laughs) And because last time we went, we went in the middle of the week, just my wife and I, and there was... Tons of parking, and we had the whole museum to ourselves. And we could not find a single parking space in a seven-level parking garage. We just kept going deeper, deeper, down into the bowels of the earth. A couple of kids were getting nervous. They're like, you know, we are real. And then the parking garage just ends. There's just a cement wall and not a single parking spot. So we make a U-turn and we go back up the spiral and we're like, well, if we get a spot, we get a spot. No parking spots. So what are you going to do? You just drove two hours to go to the Getty Museum and there's no parking. Various trials of life. Is what it is. Or... Maybe mom and dad weren't so wise to pick January whatever the date was on a Saturday when people are like in town for the Rose Bowl and the Rose Bowl parade. And Okay, we'll come back during the week, one of these weeks when we have a day off and come when no one else is coming. So what are we going to do? We're already down here. Let's go to the UCLA campus. It's where Jennifer and I went to school. There was nobody on the campus. I have never seen so much parking at UCLA in all my life. We could have parked anywhere. And the campus was empty. And so we got to walk around the campus and drive around the campus. And 
there's the fraternity house daddy lived in and, and saw your mother for the first time. And there's the sorority house she lived in. Oh, by the way, I proposed to her right there. And the girls are like, what? You don't just say that's where I proposed and drive off. <laughs> and we, we walked around the campus and, and there's the steps mommy fell down and broke her leg. And her, her then-boyfriend, who was pre-med, said, Oh, it's not broken. Tough it out. <laughs> it was broken. <laughs> I'm not a doctor now. so There's the lecture hall where I failed O-Chem and then had to take it again. And every, every, every spot we looked at either brought a good memory or the reminder of a trial. One commentator writing on this section of James put it this way. Think about the youth in high school, and he can't wait to become a senior because now I'll run the campus. And, and, uh, but then you're like, I can't wait to get out of here. I'm so sick of school, so sick of paper, so tired of these people, tired of my parents' rules, can't wait to get out of the house and be on my own because that will make the trial go away. It'll all get better once I get out of high school. And so either you get married or you get a job or you go to college. And none of those three fix the problem. They just bring a new set of problems. I remember in college, if I could just graduate and get out of here. People work so hard to get into that school. And then you get in and you're like, I can't wait till I'm out of here. I'm so sick of Top Ramen. I am so (laughs) sick of being poor. It's one test, one paper after another. They just keep hitting you. Remember that? You know, if I could just graduate and get a job and get my career started, then I'll be happy. And then you get that first job and you're like, yeah, when do I get to retire? (laughs) Like, school doesn't look so bad now. If I could afford to be a student, I would just think I'd stay in school. And some people do, right? Yeah, professional see as long as mom and dad keep uh, sending money or you just keep getting more and more student loans, maybe they'll just wipe my student loans away. But all of these trials are good. They make you grow up. They make you mature. You say, if I can just get married, that'll fix everything. And it's just if we could just have a child... You wait and you wait and wait for that first child thinking that's going to fix everything. And then you're like, if, if she'll just sleep through the night, that'll fix everything. <laughs> and if she could just w- walk so she can get her own stuff, that would fix everything. And, and on it goes. And you start to realize that the one thing in life where you'll never have to say that if I can just get past this, then it all will be better, is your relationship with God. There is nothing on the other side of that. That's where the buck stops, and the buck stops somewhere great. And it's why we long for heaven. And I don't think that there won't be trials in heaven. We'll just be perfectly mature in Christ, and we'll know how to handle them. We'll welcome them. It'll be... No more sin in the way, but we're going to continue to grow and learn. It's an infinite God. No boredom in heaven. Something new all the time. 
So let's start considering various trials as just, this is life on this planet. Welcome them. They make us grow. They make us better people. They make us more like Christ. If we view them correctly. Let me give you some categories to think about these various trials. Because our temptation is just to say, oh, woe is me, where did that come from? We think we're the only ones going through trials. I'm con- you know, you're convinced you have the worst job on the planet, the worst boss on the planet, the worst spouse, the worst kid, wh- whatever. And you're always saying, if I could just change this, or this person would change, or this circumstance would change, then I would finally be a happy person. Not true. That thing will change, and you'll find the next thing that's wrong with your life. People who are mature in Christ, you know who these people are. They just have the joy of the Lord on their face at all times. It's not that they don't struggle. It's not a happy, clappy kind of Pollyanna-ish. Let's make a game out of it and see if we can find something good. It's not what you tell people when they find out they have cancer. It's serious. It's difficult. We enter into people's pain with them, but we don't wallow in that pain. We go to God for wisdom and say, God, teach me how to endure through this trial and glorify you in it. Speaking of cancer, it was John Piper who wrote the book, Don't Waste Your Life. And I think later he wrote a book, Don't Waste Your Cancer. So the sources of trials. One, just the trials caused by our own ignorance and immaturity. We get ourselves into trials because we just don't know better sometimes. That's, that's growing up. And we try to teach our kids and give them wisdom and some stuff they just have to figure out themselves. And they get all anxious about stuff. And you take it seriously and you walk it through them and then when they leave and you're with your spouse, you kind of giggle because you're like, it's such a big deal to them right now. Life gets so much harder though. You know, but right now, this is the trial. And you can only do that because you walked through those stages of life. And it's great that the body of Christ was surrounded by people older and wiser than us. And if you're humble, you can go to those people and glean some really great wisdom. I hope you have those people in your life. Sometimes they're not older than you chronologically. They're older than you in their spiritual walk. Then there's the trials caused by our own sin. And the Lord is teaching me, I need to go here first before I go anywhere else on the list. Certainly I am still a sinner and my own sin gets me into trials. God disciplines those who He loves. We end up reaping what we've sowed. Sometimes it's just my sinful attitude. I didn't commit a sin to get me into the trial, but now I'm sinning in the way I respond to the trial. And so now I'm making the trial worse than it needs to be. Sometimes trials are caused by the sin of others. Don't go there first. Let's 
generally where we tend to go. I'm unhappy and it's your fault. If I could just get you out of the way, my trial would go away. Or if you would just change, then my trial would go away. And we spend all of our energy and all of that that time worrying and being manipulative to try to get everyone else to change when the answer is changing my own outlook, my own perspective. Then there's the trials just caused by the consequences of living in a fallen world. There's earthquakes and famines and floods and A couple of years ago, we, we were going on another surprise ride, and we hit this traffic jam on the 14. And by the time it cleared up, like an hour and a half later, there was just a mangle of like eight cars all meshed into one car. It was one of the most horrendous accidents I've seen. And I'm like, wow, we missed that accident by 30 seconds. You know, somebody's world is upside down. I had to wait in traffic for an hour. I was parked next to Richie Meister. It's kind, of, <laughs> kind of crazy. You're like, oh, hey. And, you know, you get mad and you're like, what idiot caused this accident? And then you get up there and, you, you know, we said kids don't look. I mean, it was, it was just horrendous. Consequences of living in a fallen world. Accidents happen. You've got... Big plans, you planned an outdoor wedding and it rains or snows. Hey, it's the Hatchapi. You never know when it's going to snow. It happens. Why is this happening to me on my special day? It just does. Ultimately, though, we are not deists. We are theists. God is actively at work in all of these trials. He allows and ordains trials in our life. It's not, why would you do this to me? It's, Lord, why are you allowing this in my life? What are you teaching me? How are you making me more into your, the person, the image of your son through this trial? For the unbeliever, they would rather live in a world that is random. Because when evil happens, they can't understand a God who allow evil in our lives for a good purpose. But as believers, we know God is sovereignly at work. And these trials are meant to increase our faith and draw us closer to Him. So the goal then is spiritual maturity. James 1.4, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This isn't a view of perfectionism. It's difficult to find out that God has ordained for us a life in which the goal is somewhat unachievable. But if the ultimate goal in life was achievable, then what would you do after that? God's given us this goal in life because there's a blessing in the process. 
more than the product. Embrace the process. Any teachers in the room, I loathe grades. I hate having to grade papers. Even in math, it's not really about assigning a grade. It's about growing in knowledge. It's about learning to think logically. It's about seeing how God has so intricately made the world that this math, mathematics just works. It wasn't invented by man so much as it was discovered. They get all caught up in their grades. And one day you wake up and realize all that work I put into that paper or whatever and got a grade on it, throw it away. It's like It can't be about the grade. It can't be so much about the final product. Our final product is to be conformed into the image of Christ, the perfect one. We'll be doing that for all eternity. In the meantime, before heaven, sin is getting in our way. When we get to heaven, sin won't be in the way anymore. It will come more natural. We won't have two natures competing. We'll have one nature. In the meantime, though, we need to understand that there's these two natures, that we are lacking. We're lacking in wisdom. Not only are we lacking in wisdom, but our own wisdom gets in the way. And our own pride in our own wisdom gets in the way of listening to God's wisdom. Paul puts it this way, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect or complete or mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Look at those pronouns, those personal pronouns. For this I toil. This is what drives Paul every day. For him to grow in spiritual maturity and to help other Christians grow in spiritual maturity. And if you're not a Christian yet, that's the starting point of your spiritual maturity. For this I toil, struggling with all All my energy? What's it say? All His energy. The same energy, the same power that rose Christ from the dead. Working in us to mature us in Christ if we'll yield to the power. The power like a powerful locomotive. And as one preacher said, either you get on the train or you get drug behind the train. Your choice, are you going to work with God in this spiritual maturity? Because that's where he's headed and that's where you're going. Work with it. Work with them. Lean into your trials. Another test this morning. All right, here we go. My wife was reading that the average person makes 10,000 choices or decisions every day. The maturity that James is talking about is getting to that place where the choices almost become second nature to do what Jesus would do. You know, what would Jesus do? You have to work at it. You have to consider it. You have to think as God would think. How would God deal with this? What is God's perspective here? 
Lots of the choices we have to make, we don't have time to go through that thought process, but we slow our lives down and intentionally learn, go to Bible study, sit under the preaching of God's Word, discipline ourselves to think this way, so that in those moments where there aren't time to think, what comes out? Christ comes out in me. It's a beautiful thing. When it happens in my life and my wife is there to experience it, she's like, where did that come from? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. God's working in me. Especially walking around that campus yesterday, we were unbelievers in college. Just well, That was 20 years ago. We were completely different people. I was obnoxious, sinning, impulsive, clownish. Certainly no one you would ever put anywhere near a pulpit. (laughs) And I can't take pride in any of those changes. Only the kind of pride uh, Paul talks about. A boast in Christ. Wow, he's done this in me. And i got a long ways to go. Amen? Hey. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I think you're all saying amen. That's me too, right? It's resonating with you. So then, what stands in the way then of this goal of spiritual maturity? Two things. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and he's saying basically we all lack wisdom. It's not really that kind of if-then statement. It's an if-then statement in the Greek that assumes this is the case. It's a rhetorical if-then. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. He's not going to reproach you for asking for wisdom. It's a position of humility to go before God and say, I need your wisdom here, God. He's not going to say, oh, you fool. Why don't you know how to do this already? As a teacher or as a parent, I love it when a child or a student comes to me and says, I really need help with this. I'm not going to say, go figure it out yourself. It's the kids who think they don't need help that exasperate me. So no, God's not going to reproach you for asking for wisdom. If you're asking with the right heart, and that's the second thing that gets in the way. He must ask without any doubt. And this doubt is rooted in pride, this kind of doubt that James is talking about. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded here, the words dysikos, is the first place we ever see this word used. So we would assume that James coined this term under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe a very specific kind of person. Someone who's saying, I acknowledge that God is the source of all wisdom, but I'm pretty wise too. Well, I'm stuck in this trial, God, and I want to get out of it. I guess I'll go to you to ask for help, but I really don't see how this is going to help.
I get two kinds of people coming into my office for help. First of all, I make sure, are they Christians? If they're Christians, then the next thing I need to ascertain is, do they actually believe that they're the problem and that Jesus is the solution? Or are they convinced that everything else and everyone else is the problem? And yeah, Jesus is the, their solution. And if we can't get to the place where they're not double-minded anymore, then it's very hard to make any kind of progress in spiritual maturity. They want the situation to go away, but there's always going to be another situation. And God, out of His love for us, is going to continue to put us in the same kinds of circumstances until we learn whatever lesson it is that we need to learn. Our own foolishness and our own pride will get us into the same predicament over and over and over. A disastrous combination of a lack of wisdom and prideful doubt. A lack of wisdom and prideful doubt. It, yes, it's bad if you say, I don't need wisdom. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14.12 But James is preaching to, to Christians here. We have a Christian audience we know we need wisdom, but you need to understand that you still have this residual sin nature who thinks your wisdom is better than God's wisdom. If you think about what was the essence of the fall of man, here is man placed in the garden. He has no idea how he got there, what he's supposed to do there, what a garden even is, who put him there. He is completely dependent on God to reveal to him and interpret his reality. We are all in that same situation. We need God to interpret reality for us. He's given us the Holy Spirit and his word so we can do just that. And in comes another voice that tempts man to not listen to God as the source of wisdom and in fact says, if you eat from this tree, you will have your own wisdom apart from God. And God makes it so black and white in Genesis 3. No, we, we try to make life complicated. It's so simple. It really just comes to that. God said you would die if you eat from this tree. And when the tree represented you coming up with your own interpretation of reality apart from God. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You get to decide what's right and wrong. You get to determine your own reality. God said you would die from, if you eat from this tree. Man was tempted to say, no, I won't die. Isn't that a completely different interpretation of reality? It's the complete opposite. Now, Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature before they fell. But after the fall, all of us have inherited that nature. This is the crux of the problem. This is what's going to stand in the way of our spiritual maturity is this tendency, this inclination to always kind of say, I think I know better. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and it's the fool who despises wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. God is God. God is holy. God is sovereign. God is all-wise. He's all-powerful. I need to listen to Him. And I know He loves me because He died for me. So when we go to God seeking wisdom, 
you've got to teach yourself to be suspicious of your own wisdom. Come to God's Word with humility, acknowledging even if I'm a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit in me and I'm reading the Word of God and I'm listening to the interpretation, I'm still going to bring to the Bible what I want it to say, what I want it to mean. You've got to learn to be suspicious of of your own sin nature first. Then you can come to the Bible in humility and say, God, teach me. And when, when what He's teaching clashes with what you think you already know, God ought to win that battle. God ought to, to win that battle. And what I have learned to do in those moments is to talk to a lot of people. And when I think, no, 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 it's this way, and everybody's saying, no, Brent, it's not what you think. I need to listen. I need to listen. When I'm interpreting my experiences this way, and my Christian friends and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit are telling me otherwise, I have to fight that temptation in me to say, I reserve the right to have the final word on this. So let me pray for us. Please continue reading through the first chapter of James and really saturate yourself with with this teaching. Father God, we come before you acknowledging that you are the source of all wisdom and truth. And the source of all wisdom and truth, your word has revealed to us that we have a sin nature that doesn't want to acknowledge you as the source of all wisdom and truth. What a terrible problem, predicament we find ourselves in, Lord. We must choose to believe you know better than us, and you're teaching us that we think we know better than you. Lord, we will need your power and your grace to overcome this fallenness in us. Make us a people ready to listen to you and trust you wanting faith in you to increase and abound more and more, more than anything else in our life. And whatever it takes in your providence to increase our faith in you, we welcome it, Lord. We know that will be through various trials. Help us to not run away from trials, avoid trials, complain in our trials, but to embrace them as the very vehicle you are using to make us like Christ and to draw us close to you. Please do this for your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you next week.